Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Coming to you live from New York, I'm Zane Asher in for Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here is your need to know. Russia claims it's approved the world's first coronavirus vaccine. SoftBank's surge. The global tech rally helps the Japanese giant post a $12 billion quarterly profit. And Lebanon's government steps down amid protests. What comes next? It is Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. So good to have you with us. I'm Zane Asher. Let's begin with a look at markets. U.S. futures are pointing to a solidly higher open for the Dow and the S&P 500. The Dow is up in terms of futures, 352 points, but tech stocks are set to pull back in early trading. The S&P 500 begins today's session very close to all-time highs as a rotation into value stock continues. And stocks are rising amid optimism that Congress will ultimately approve fresh emergency aid for unemployed U.S. workers. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says the White House is willing to put more money on the table if that's what it takes to seal a deal. President Trump's announcement last night that he is considering cutting capital gains taxes through an executive order is helping sentiment as well. Stocks are also rallying in Europe. Cyclical firms that do well in an economic recovery are among the strongest gainers right now. European auto stocks are sharply higher after China reported an almost 16.5% spike in car sales last month, suggesting that its recovery is revving into higher gear. Chinese stocks lost ground today amid concern about worsening U.S.-China relations, but other Asian markets rallied. Hong Kong uh, led the way, rising more than 2% after three days of losses. All right, let's get straight to the drivers now and another positive day for the markets hopes for a COVID-19 vaccine. Russia is claiming its government has just approved the world's first coronavirus vaccine. President Vladimir Putin announced his daughter is actually among the first to receive a dose of the drug named Sputnik V. Take a listen to this. A vaccine against coronavirus has been registered for the first time in the world this morning. I know that it works quite effectively. It forms a stable immunity. Elizabeth Cohen joins us live now. So, Elizabeth, a lot of people are sceptical about this vaccine. The big question is, is it safe and is it effective? We don't know. We don't know, Zane, because they haven't actually fully tested it. It is standard that when you are going to put a vaccine on the market and vaccinate basically, you know, essentially your entire population, you want to make sure if it's safe and effective. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the standard. And Russia has not followed this standard. They are still doing their phase three studies. So they might have, you know, they did some earlier studies, maybe as best as anyone can tell on a couple hundred people. That is not enough. That is not enough to 
to know if it works. It is not enough to know if it's going to hurt people, maybe even kill people. There is a reason we do phase three studies with tens of thousands of people. You don't put the vaccine on the market while you're doing those studies. You put the vaccine on the market after you have done those studies. So you know, Mr. Putin sort of trotting out his daughter as an example of, oh, she was fine. Who cares? Who cares? It doesn't matter if one person was fine. You want to know if tens of thousands of people are fine. I think that the former USD,、uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, said he put it perfectly. I wouldn't take it. Zane, I think a lot of people share that sentiment. I mean, clearly. Uh, corners were cut here. So, what do we know about what the actual vaccine is comprised of?、Uh, a lot of people are saying that it was initially used from、uh, components that were used to fight other diseases, and that's what the vaccine is made up of. What can you tell us about that? Right. So we're told that it's. And now, first of all, I want. I'm emphasizing we're told because there's nothing published about any of this. And so in science, you want to see things published. You want to see numbers. You want to see explanations. You want to see details. And there's none of that. There's just. Trust me. Let me put a shot in your arm. So. Having said that, we are told that it's an adenovirus vaccine, and that is a form of vaccine that's also being tried tried out at other places in other countries. And it has been used experimentally for an Ebola vaccine and for other types of vaccines. But to claim that we know it's safe just isn't true. There has never been an adenovirus vaccine on the market. Experimentally, yes, but never on the market. Right, Elizabeth Cohen, live for us there. Thank you so much. Thanks. Optimism for COVID-19 vaccines has helped global markets move higher this summer. The S&P 500 is less, is less than one percent below its record high. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. So, Claire, we could again be seeing record highs today in the middle of a historic recession. What are the drivers here? Yeah, so Zane, as you said, hopes for a vaccine is one of them. The Russian vaccine appears to be one of the triggers today, despite the fact that, as Elizabeth was so clearly pointing out, this requires a lot of caution. We've seen other vaccines, though, the Moderna vaccine in the U.S., the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine in the U.K., all showing progress. That is part of what's driven this、uh, over the summer. Sort of hopes for stimulus, although that is pretty muted、uh, in the U.S. right now. And of course, as we know, Zane, markets tend to move. A lot of the time on earnings and expectations were so low for the second quarter that in a lot of cases we've seen companies beat due to things like cost cutting and efficiencies and things like that. So that is crucial too. And of course, the economic data in some ways hasn't been as bad as expected either. Case in point was the jobs report last week. Yes, we're still seeing really high unemployment numbers, but the number of jobs added was a little higher. Than expected, so that is part of what's driving this,、uh, and I think you see that reflected this morning in the kinds of stocks that are, that are really up.、Uh, the things like cruise lines, airlines, those are the ones that would really benefit from a vaccine, from a sudden start again to the economic activity that has been stalled for so long. And in terms of the sectors that have really been fueling this rally, I mean, tech stocks, as you know, Claire, have been leading the way, but the Nasdaq seems to be taking a pause. Why? Yeah, I think part of what we're seeing now is 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 what we call a rotation. People are shifting their portfolios away from these these sort of big name, big 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 value tech stocks that have been leading the way, and into the the beaten down blue chips, the likes of Boeing and Caterpillar, which showed strong gains yesterday. And what this really means, then, is that people are looking ahead. They're, they're thinking more long term about a recovery. They're willing to bet. That things will get back up and running, which would benefit stocks like Boeing if people start flying again. Whereas the tech stocks, the likes of Amazon and Netflix, 
They are more of a sort of lockdown work from home trader, at least they have been throughout this. They have been the beneficiaries of this sudden stop in economic activity. So I think you can see some positives in that rotation in terms of, of the longer term thinking in the market. But I think while we continue this quest for a vaccine and therapeutics and all of that, there will still be a lot of volatility. All right. Uh, Claire Sebastian, live for us. Thank you so much. The investment company SoftBank has rebounded from a record loss. The Japanese firm uh, chalked up a profit of $12 billion in the latest quarter, and its Vision Fund reported investment gains of nearly $3 billion. Let's bring in Cherie's fam, who's joining us live now. So this is quite the comeback for SoftBank, um, you know, especially after just after they recorded their worst year in history. How have they done it? They've put up a lot of valuable assets up for sale, haven't they? Yeah, this is quite the comeback for SoftBank. But you know what? SoftBank and Masayoshi Sun are still on the defense. You know, Sun, he started this presentation with his typical flair. He opened with uh, saying that every day is like a war for us with this ongoing pandemic. And then he showed these black and white historic photos of war photos showing soldiers trying to defend themselves against a mounted attack. And then he compared a fire sale of $41 billion worth of assets to shore up SoftBank's stock price to soldiers hunkering down behind a barricade. So really just kind of showing that SoftBank and and Masayoshi Sun, they still have a battle ahead of them. So even though they were able to swing back to profitability this quarter, a lot of that is because, as you mentioned in your hit with Claire just now, it was off the back of this massive tech rally that we've been seeing in the markets for the past few months. The Vision Fund has a lot of tech companies in, in its portfolio. The public ones, being Uber and Slack, have benefited from this rally in recent days. But Sun also saying the course of the pandemic could be a risk factor for SoftBank going forward. If there's a second or a third or a fourth wave, that could drive down the value of the Vision Fund portfolio. So naturally, analysts and investors still a little skeptical as to whether uh, SoftBank and the Vision Fund can remain profitable going forward. Okay, but you mentioned uh, buybacks and that sort of being used to sort of prop up the share price. How has their improved performance, how is that being reflected in the share price right now? The share price has made a, a, a comeback. You know, when when the company reported those historic losses last quarter, the worst quarterly quarterly loss that SoftBank has ever recorded in its history, of course, the share price took a nosedive. And so SoftBank and Masayoshi Sun did a little bit of a panic and a self-assessment. They sold a bunch of assets and uh, they basically embarked on a massive share buyback program. Um, which has helped the stock to turn around a little bit, but it's it's unclear if this is going to last for the long term. For the long term, because again, yes, we saw SoftBank and the Vision Fund swing to profitability, twelve billion dollars in profitability for SoftBank, about three billion dollars in gains for the Vision Fund. But let's not forget that for three straight quarters before. Today's earnings report, the Vision Fund was reporting losses to the tune of billions of dollars. So naturally, investors and analysts, and quite frankly, this reporter here, is skeptical as to whether these profits can be maintained for the long term. Yeah, we don't know how long it's going to last. Cherie's fam, life for us there. Thank you so much. All right, these are the stories making headlines around the world. Lebanon's government stepped down Monday less than a week after that massive explosion in Beirut led to days of violent protests. The blast 
killed more than 160 people and wounded thousands. The prime minister said endemic corruption going back years was responsible for the disaster, thought to have been caused by chemicals being improperly stored. Protests have been escalating with demonstrations occupying several government buildings and clashing with security forces. Our Sam Kiley reports from Beirut. If you're in the Lebanese opposition, this is democracy in action. 30 or 40 yards down the street that's barricaded there uh, is the outer cordon for the Lebanese parliament. The demonstrators are absolutely dead set, they've told me, on getting into more and more government buildings to try and demonstrate that the government itself is really a chimera. It is hopeless. It is a sort of joke. As the cleanup continues after thousands of tons of fertilizer is believed to have blown up and destroyed parts of Beirut, activists are adamant that Lebanon's sectarian system, its dynastic politics, corruption and negligence led to the blast. We will go to the parliament, we will go to their houses, we will go to each place uh, to get them down. They will go to a place they will be, you will not be able to go by to the streets. Ever. Uh, the killed people uh, is a big thing to us. Lebanon's government has been dissolved, but the parliament, with 128 seats which are shared among Christians, Sunnis, Druze and Shia, remains, and there are no prospects yet of elections. But Walid Jumblat, the Druze leader who inherited his role from his father and has arguably benefited from the existing system, is pessimistic that even early elections would bring change. When I see the protesters, the revolutionary, when I saw them and I see them yesterday and uh, they want to change Lebanon, they want the new Lebanon. But the obstacles to change in new Lebanon is in this specific point, alliance of minorities and the electoral law. Because you cannot change Lebanon through, let's, let's say, military coup d'etat. It's impossible. Close to the epicenter of Tuesday's blast, the Qatar party's headquarters is in ruins. It's a largely Christian Maronite party. Its secretary-general was killed in the explosion. His bloody handprint still visible. So sorry. The grandson of the party's founder and son of a former president, nephew of another president who was murdered, Sami Gamal supports the street protests. We are all from families that were part of the old Lebanon. This is uh, how we, the, the, new, the new generation didn't come uh, from nowhere. And it's our duty to uh, uh, do our uh, uh, revolution, our own revolution, each one in his society and, and the place where he is. But in Martyrs Square, protesters now include former Lebanese commando leader, Colonel Georges Nadar. He wants to see the old guard swept away entirely. Change is coming and I recommend they leave peacefully or we will go to their homes and do it by force. That night it was the protests who were eventually swept away, but not for long. They have plans to harness public anger over the Beirut blast to a more powerful revolutionary rage. Sam Kiley reporting from Beirut. Some coronavirus restrictions are making a comeback in New Zealand. That's after the nation saw its first locally transmitted cases 
in more than 100 days. They involve four members of one household in Auckland. Now officials are reinstating level three restrictions in the city from Wednesday through Friday. The rest of the country will go back into level two restrictions. Still to come here on First Move, the CEO of America's biggest bank says more government help is needed to save the U.S. economy. We'll bring you an interview with Jamie Diamond of J.P. Morgan Chase and the work from home revolution is making life easier for cyber criminals. We'll speak to the CEO of security firm Proofpoint next. More government spending is the only way to save the U.S. economy, says the CEO of America's biggest bank. With Congress deadlocked over the next federal aid package, J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon told Christine Romans that more aid is vital for an economic recovery. Do you think it's fair to say that the, the, the shape of the recovery depends on what Congress does in this next, uh, this next tranche of, of financial aid? I think it's critical, yeah. Most of the economists have built in a trillion and a half to two trillion dollars of, an, of another program, which will help get small businesses and individuals, you know, kind of to the end of the year and early next year. And I do think you're going to need that to stabilize this. And then hopefully you can start a steady recovery after that. As people start to go back to work, get more comfortable, the cases come down, the hospitals can easily handle, uh, you know, people have COVID inside the ICUs, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm hopeful we'll get our hands around it, yes. The, the risk is we get it wrong. The risk is we don't take it seriously, or 95% of the Americans don't wear masks, a politicized topic. I mean, are you concerned at all about the risk this is a five-year recovery, not a one-year recovery? No. I think that's too scary. <laughs> too scary. <laughs> too scary. It's not so, in your It's not. It, in your it won't be five years. Okay. It will, we will recover, and the real question is how bad, you know, what's the baseline, the real baseline, because it's hard to tell. You can't look at any monthly data today and really get too much out of it because there's so many ups, you know, differences now than they were in the past. The real question is, how bad is the base? And does the recovery take two or three years? Or, you know, can it possibly take just one year? Where, where are we here? How are we doing? And the virus isn't under control yet, so do we really know? We're slowly getting the virus under control. And other countries have, and so, you know, we'll, we will win that war. But we are, you're, no one really knows. We're in, kind of still in the middle of this thing. We're having this recession. We don't really see it in turn. You see it in unemployment, but not incomes, home prices, delinquencies, like the basic suffering that comes out of it sometimes. And so you're going to see some of that effect down the road. Most of the economists have this model where the 10.2% unemployment just reported you know, would be nine, maybe under nine by the end of the year, maybe under seven by the end of next year. That, I hope that that's the case. To have that happen, we need really good government intervention. And which they're working on. And I think they did a very good job the first time. So I think the government did get it right. And, you know, you can criticize some of these programs, but I think the administration, Secretary Mnuchin, the Democrats, the Republicans, they did it within weeks. Have you ever seen a government do something within weeks? But both the PPP, the unemployment insurance, the, the payroll checks, the Fed programs, and those things did stop it from getting far worse. And so, you know, and we just need a little bit of continuation. Do we need more? Yeah, we're going to need more, yeah. You know, outside of uh, Washington, where things are kind of normal, process, arguing over stimulus, uh, Wall Street, where the Nasdaq's up 22% this year and the, the, the S&P is flat, Main Street still feels pretty, pretty rough. Can you explain to our viewers the difference between what we're seeing in Washington on Wall Street and what re- regular people are feeling right now with 13 million people out of work? Well, is there I, a disconnect? I, and I think it's far more important. 
So literally, I mean, when you have 13 million people out of work and you got people suffering and small business suffering, that's far more important than you know, the, the vicissitudes of Wall Street. And you know, I think, so I'm much more sympathetic there. That, that, that's what we should worry about. But, you know, markets are markets. You know, the central banks of the world and the fiscal governments of the world have put in, I've got the number, $12 trillion. You know, when you put $12 trillion into markets, it has the effect of raising prices and causing a lot of different things and doesn't necessarily stop some of that suffering. So, but, but they did a smart thing, and this is very important for the public to understand, to, op- to make sure the markets are open. So all these companies are raising capital, most active capital raising ever in the last three or four months. In, in the United States, equity, debt, convertibles, et cetera. And that gave these companies a chance to get the money they need to keep on going and to keep their people employed. So, the, so it is important we do those things, even though you know, the, the average person may not see the benefit directly. You don't want some of these big companies laying off 20,000 or 30,000 yeah. people. And that can start a vicious cycle where, and then they cut advertising, they cut this and they cut that. And before you know, we're making something worse. And 27 tech and banking leaders have banded together to promise 100,000 jobs for low-income, Black, Latino, and Asian New Yorkers by 2030. Among them is J.P. Morgan Chase's Jamie Dimon. The program includes 25,000 jobs uh, for CUNY students. J.P. Morgan's CEO and CUNY's chancellor spoke to Christine Romans about how it will work. Your hope is to build a pipeline for Black, Latinx, Asian New Yorkers not for jobs that make $20,000 a year, for jobs that make $50,000, $60,000, $70,000 a year, for the workforce of the future. How are you going to do that? So get the CEOs and the companies, big employers in the city, who know what their needs are, to talk to the educators who want their kids to graduate with good livelihoods and working together. You know, we will form curriculum and ideas and thoughts and over time hopefully create a wonderful pipeline particularly targeting the disadvantaged. We know that the pandemic has sort of revealed these disparities, these opportunity disparities that have been around for a long time. Is this a moment? Is this an opportunity with the pandemic shining the light on this to fix it? I mean, absolutely. In our case, uh, 75% of our students come from those communities, so it's a natural. So we have that great talent base, and now what we need is that ongoing conversation with uh, with the employers and uh, making sure that we um, do well with the programs that are working, that we rethink the ones that are not, that we invent the ones that we need to create uh, for the future. Do companies have a moral responsibility, you think, to fix this problem in capitalism, this inequality that for some reason just, just sticks? Yeah. First of all, I think it's far deeper than that. As you pointed out, this has been going on our whole lives. So while COVID pointed out the murder of George Floyd made it more obvious, it was there before. And this whole effort started way before this. Yeah. I think that business has to work. And it's not because government can't do it, but business has to work with government, civic society, educators, unions, whoever, to solve society's biggest problems. Government alone can't do it. The, the pace is quick. The world has become more complex. And these problems are education and jobs, infrastructure, immigration. And if you fix these things, we will have a far more just society, a happier society, more jobs, and more, you know, more growth, which can pay for better safety nets, et cetera. One of the things that um, a lot of researchers have noted is networks, the importance of building networks. And that's where companies uh, and fancy universities, I'll say, have these big networks that they hire from and that pipelines. Are you going to try to disrupt that? The idea is to build new networks, right? And and, and to make those connections uh, happen. And uh, in our case, Half of our students are first-generation college, so that apprenticeship, that internship is going to be the beginning of those building of, of, of networks, and uh, and then everybody's going to see what kind of talent there is. So 
Um, I, I think that the idea is to broaden the networks and expand who gets to participate. So a couple of statistics. A black household headed by somebody with a college degree has less wealth than a white household headed by somebody who didn't graduate from high school. And the income gap between white and black families, uh, incomes, um, is the same as it was since 1968. So how do we fix that? This program, important, obviously, but we need a complete disruption of American education and business life, it feels like, to fix that. What would you do? You know, I mean, first of all, you gotta acknowledge what the problem is, and very often we don't. And then you got to attack it, and there's, there's no simple answer. But one of the first answers is education and jobs. Obviously, people may need help at the family level, social help or something like that, affordable housing. How can you get more capital to black entrepreneurs, Latinx entrepreneurs, et cetera? Yeah, we got to do all of them, every single one of them. But this one is the most important. Jobs and opportunity are probably the most important. And, you know, and I'm proud um, that we're sort of the biggest social mobility uh, engine in, in, in the entire United States has been documented coming from education, right? The one thing that we need to improve is the career engagement because that connection to jobs is the one thing that can make what we've done that has been disruptive a game changer. We'll be right back with the opening bell after the break. You're watching First Move. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday. It is a mixed open for the major indices. Let's take a look here. The S&P 500 and the Dow rallying. And the S&P, by the way, very close to hitting all-time highs. The Dow is on track for an eighth straight day of gains, but the Nasdaq is lower for a third straight session as rotation into cyclical stocks that do well during economic recoveries continues. Tech stocks may be taking a breather, but they are still up more than 20% year to date. Investors say a rotation away from uh, tech can ultimately be a positive for the markets. Airline shares are among today's strongest gainers on news that U.S. passenger traffic has hit its highest levels since lockdown began. Uh, Investors are also anticipating billions in new federal aid for the industry as well. I want to bring you more, though, on Russia's development of a coronavirus vaccine with President Vladimir Putin claiming it is the world's first. There are concerns about a lack of stage three trials, which involve giving the drug to thousands of people. Still, that hasn't stopped countries from piling in with requests for the drug, which is called Sputnik V. Matthew Chance joins us live now from Moscow. So, Matthew, Russia clearly wants to show the world that it's still a superpower, especially in terms of its scientific endeavors. But a lot of people are saying that releasing a vaccine to the public before you've even completed phase three clinical trials is dangerous, plain and simple. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous. Phase three uh, trials are crucial because it's during those trials, which are usually carried out amongst thousands of people, that you establish whether the, uh, the vaccine is safe and, of course, whether it's actually effective, whether it actually works. But because of a recent law change in Russia, which they passed in order to sort of fast track development of a vaccine because of the pandemic, um, for approval in this country, uh, they don't need uh, to go, go through phase three trials. In fact, those trials don't even begin here until tomorrow. In the meantime, uh, the health ministry says that the vaccine can be administered uh, to frontline health workers and teachers and, and, and people who are in other high risk categories. It was a couple of hours ago that Vladimir Putin actually broke the news on state television. He appeared in a video conference with his ministers around him uh, saying that this vaccine has now been registered, which means approved in Russia. It's gone through all the necessary checks, he said. And he said this, I know that it is effective. 
and forms stable immunity. Well, how? How does he know that? Well, take a listen to the evidence that he gave. I know it very well, as one of my daughters has been inoculated with the vaccine. I think that in this way she participated in the experiment. After the first injection, her temperature was 38 degrees Celsius. The next day, 37 something, and that's it. After the second injection, the temperature also got a bit higher, but that's it. Then it went back down. Now she feels well. All right, she feels well. An extraordinary uh, revelation there. I don't think in years have I heard Vladimir Putin ever mention any of his daughters, particularly uh, not in a context um, like this. What it doesn't do, though, is provide scientists around the world with any of the clinical data that they've been asking for. Russia hasn't published the clinical data from the tests that it has done so far. And of course, the fact that it's not undertaken the crucial third phase of human testing, it all kind of, you know, sort of adds to the views of skeptics that this vaccine is potentially not effective and potentially quite dangerous as well, Zane. Russia has had so far 900,000 cases of coronavirus. Uh, I believe that's the fourth largest number of cases in the world. 15,000 people have died from the coronavirus in Russia. Just, just walk us through how the past few months have been for Russia in terms of trying to contain uh, this disease and also what sort of pressure the Kremlin is under right now to find a solution. Well, I mean, for, for that reason, you're right. I mean, for a long time, it was the third highest number of uh, infections in the world. It's the fourth highest number now, but it's still got, you know, a lot of people uh, with that with that virus. And of course, that creates its own sort of political pressure. I mean, the Kremlin, you know, wants to show that it's doing everything it possibly can uh, to protect the people of Russia uh, from the ravages of coronavirus. And so, as I say, that's one of the pressures that the, the, the government's under. It's why they passed that law, one of the reasons why they passed the law to sort of fast track the vaccine. Other countries have fast tracked, you know, uh, you know, medical testing as well for exactly the same reason. But, you know, there's something else underlying it as well, which is that, you know, over the past few months, the idea that Russia could be first in getting a vaccine. It could lead the world. I mean, that's a very you know, seductive idea for the Kremlin. They're constantly looking for opportunities to show themselves to be you know, at the top table, whether it's in scientific research or in the military arena or anything like that. And you know, getting there first, getting across the line with a vaccine before America, before anyone in Europe, before anyone else in the world, you know, I think gives the impression that Russia is still a scientific superpower. And, and that's something that, as I say, is very appealing uh, to the Kremlin. And it perhaps is one of the reasons why they've been pushing so hard and plowing so many massive resources into getting this vaccine as soon as they have done so. Matthew Chance, life for us there. Thank you so much. In Beirut, the entire Lebanese government stepped down on Monday as popular anger over last week's massive explosion grows. Protests erupted following the blast that killed more than 160 people and injured thousands of others. The prime minister tried to focus the blame on forces beyond his control, saying corruption is bigger than the state. Fawaz Gerges is a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Fawaz, thank you so much for being with us. So the government stepped down. The big question is, when a new cabinet is formed, how do you make sure that the various individuals that will make up the new cabinet, obviously they will come with good intentions, how do you make sure that they don't also struggle under the weight of corruption as well? Well, first of all, before we talk about the composition 
of the new cabinet. The big question is, will, they, will a new cabinet be set up uh, in the next few months or so? Uh, remember, the governing elite in Lebanon is deeply polarized. Uh, you have uh, basically deep uh, divisions among the various uh, warlords in the country. Uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty now. Uh, there's a political void. The government today is a caretaker government. If you ask me what I see in the next few months, I see really more of the same. The same caretaker government remaining um, as a functioning government with hardly any authorities. So that's what I really fear. I fear the political void, the vacuum of power. Who's going to coordinate the humanitarian aid uh, uh, to the country? Who's going to talk to the IMF to put in place a set of reforms in order for Lebanon to get uh, some aid from the international community? The economy has collapsed. The country is financially broke. Uh, it's institutionally broken. So before we talk about the composition of the new cabinet, will a new cabinet be set up in the next few weeks and ne uh, next few months? And I'm really skeptical about this. Okay, so the, the caretaker government, quote unquote, is going to probably last a while and there will be bickering, there will be negotiations, just like there was with Hassan Diab when he came into power. Um, in the meantime, though, while that is going on, is it at all possible that there can be reforms? Well, I mean, you're, you're asking really a big question. Can the governing elite, all of them, all of them, uh, basically institute transformative change from within? Or will change come from without? I mean, for the past 70 years, you have the same faces, uh, the fathers and the sons, controlling the country, both financially and politically. How, why should we expect the governing elite, who basically are in control, to basically disinherit themselves? Why should they? Do we have any examples in history where basically the powers that be give up power so easily? So this brings us to the question, really, the people, the people of Lebanon. That's what you see on the streets today. I think my take on it, if we expect the governing elite to institute transformative change, this is delusional. It's wishful thinking. The pressure must continue to be exerted on the ruling elite by the people on the street. What I'm talking about really is social struggle that the young and, 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 and old people in Lebanon must come on the streets and challenge the governing elite in order to begin the process of change. And this is the only way that really we might see transformative change in Lebanon from pressure from the outside on the uh, ruling elite in order to begin the process of reforming the country. Right, because the oligarchs aren't going to suddenly change on their own, is what you're saying. So you're talking about social struggle. But, but now that there is so much international pressure after what happened a week ago. I mean, that the spotlight is on Beirut at this time, like never before. How much of a difference is that international spotlight going to make in the next few months, do you think? I think international pressure is very important. International pressure on the entirety of the political elite. The international community cannot just exert pressure on the factions that they don't like. This is a very important point. They cannot be selective. They cannot basically have their favorite uh, uh, political groupings. 
the pressure must be on the entire political system, and I really insist on all of them, in order to begin the process of structurally reforming the system. We're not talking, you asked me earlier about a cabinet. A cabinet will never make it a difference, a substantive difference in Lebanon. What you need is a new political system. You need to begin the process of really overhauling the system and putting a new system based on citizenship, based on new blood, not a system based on sectarian divisions. And the international community has a major role to play by keeping pressure on the entirety of the political system in order really to uh, show the elite there is no way out. They cannot really wiggle out of it. So the extent of internal pressure by the people of Lebanon, by collective action, by protest, and external pressure might produce some results in the uh, uh, immediate uh, uh, future as opposed to really the next few weeks and next few months. This is a, a crisis that has been in the making since 1990. It cannot, there is no magical wand. This is part of the social struggle. It will take really between five and 10 years to begin the process of over, overcoming this organic crisis that has pauperized the Lebanese people. The Lebanese people have been pauperized by the ruling elite who have siphoned the resources of the country for the past 30 years. Fahaz Gerges, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. People in Lebanon are expected to hold a vigil in the next hour to mark one week since the devastating explosion. Stay with CNN for our special coverage of the event in Beirut. The opposition presidential candidate in Belarus has now fled to Lithuania. Its foreign minister tweeted that <clears throat> Svetlana Tihanovskaya is now safe in the Baltic nation. She fled amid a massive crackdown on opposition protesters who are disputing Sunday's presidential election. Official results gave President Alexander Lukashenko a sixth term in office, but independent observers say there was widespread vote rigging. After the break, a work-from-home warning from the cybersecurity giant Proofpoint, some major concerns about the dangers of remote connections. Welcome back to First Move. Let's take one last look at the markets. The major U.S. averages remain mixed in early trading. The S&P 500 is inching closer to record highs and the Dow is up by more than 1%, driven higher by Boeing, banks and energy stocks as well. But the Nasdaq is falling for a third straight session. Chalk it up to a rotation out of tech and into cyclical firms that will do well as economies strengthen. Here in the U.S., Halloween is certainly a big deal. And in shops and stores, candy displays have arrived even earlier this year. With trick-or-treating in doubt because of the pandemic, candy manufacturers are trying to protect themselves from potential losses for their biggest season of the year. Hershey has now partnered with retailers to set up Halloween merchandise earlier in the summer, in some cases actually four weeks earlier, so a whole month earlier. Um, and in addition to the longer season, Hershey's is focusing more on family-sized packs and fewer treats in Halloween-specific packaging. Coronavirus has brought with it all kinds of masks. I'll bet you haven't seen one quite like this. Take a look at this. It is an 18-carat 18 karat mask made in Israel with more than 3,600 diamonds. It costs 
get this, $1.5 million and comes with an N95 filter as well. The buyer is an unnamed Chinese billionaire living in the U.S. who wanted basically the most expensive mask in the world. So the designer says that he added just a few extra carrots uh, just to be on the safe side. There it is, that mask worth $1.5 million. Uh, that is it for the show. Thank you so much for being with us here on First Move. I'm Zane Asher. Whatever you're up to in the coming hours, please do stay safe. You're watching CNN. Countless computer users now rely on remote desktop connections to work from home, and criminals are exploiting remote working to launch attacks. The cybersecurity firm Proofpoint says virtually all attacks need human intervention to work, and that remote working is increasing that risk. It says this year companies are seeing a rise in data breaches, and there's been a major increase in so-called phishing attacks using text messages. Gary Steele is CEO of Proofpoint and joins us live now. So just walk us, walk us through how the dynamics of cybersecurity have changed uh, since the pandemic started a few months ago in the U.S. Yeah, the main thing that's changed is that... Um, Threat actors realized that people were more, more vulnerable being at home. They were thinking about COVID and all the effects of COVID. And so we've seen um, threat actors basically move their lures. So getting people to click on things to something related to COVID or some something related to COVID-based events. So they're trying to get people to either click on a link or open a file, all of which then create some malicious activity on your system. So, so why are they on the rise? Why are these sorts of external-based attacks on the rise now, though? I, I think it's simply because people um, are more vulnerable because they're at home, they're not in the office. A lot of the classic controls that used to protect people are not in place. And you've got um, a bigger opportunity for threat actors. And unfortunately, threat actors are out there trying to make money and they're going to prey on people's weaknesses. And so as a result of that, we've seen um, threat actors be very aggressive, targeting individuals and trying to take advantage of them uh, in this challenging time. So what do uh, employers need to do at this point, given, given that there are so many vulnerabilities and given that bad actors are trying to take advantage, knowing that people are working remotely, knowing that people are working from home, how do employee, employers need to rethink cybersecurity? Yeah, I think that it's pretty straightforward. I think employers are really thinking about how do they better protect their employees. And they're doing a couple of things. One is they're putting protections in place. So um, technology that helps identify those phishing attacks and block them. And then secondly, we see employers also trying to raise the awareness of their users, trying to make those users that much more vigilant in uh, recognizing attacks and protecting themselves and the data that belongs to the company. It's also about trying to figure out who's more likely to be at risk and who is more likely to be targeted? How do employers figure that out too? Yeah, no, this one of the things we do as a cybersecurity company is we help employers understand who really is being targeted, um, the kinds of attacks being launched at those specific individuals, and then who's more vulnerable, who's more likely to click, uh, who's more likely um, to give up 
various kinds of information. And so we provide those kinds of analytics to employers so that they can be that much smarter in how they protect their employee base. And although we're seeing a rise, certainly, when it comes to, you know, external attacks via email, is it the same when it comes to SMS and text messaging, too? You know, threat actors go where they think they can um, get individuals to participate and interact. So we, as you think about somebody working from home, threat actors target them in all the places they go, whether it's on text, whether it's on social media, whether it's some of the other cloud applications that they interact with. Threat actors go where people are, people will go and where they're most vulnerable. And so what's the difference just in terms of um, likelihood and, and just trends of external attacks that you and I are talking about and internal threats as well? You know, there's always a balance. Um, internal threats really come where you have um, someone that's unhappy in their role, maybe disgruntled employee or something like that, and they, they then want to do damage to the company. What's more common, frankly, today is um, external threats coming from the outside, from some threat actor, targeting some individual, trying to get to typically either that individual's financial information or health information or trying to get to the company's information. And financially, you know, as CEO of a massive cybersecurity company, just, just walk us through how business has been for you over the past few months, given the pandemic, given that people's needs when it comes to cybersecurity are indeed changing. Yeah, no, it was a big shift for us. So um, we announced our results um, last week. We were very pleased with the results. And I think there's been a couple of very positive effects for us. So as we went to this work from home environment, we saw um, companies reaching out to us to better help them defend their employees. So that became a nice tailwind for us. And clearly in this broader, uh, in the broader economic impact, we have seen some of our existing customers renew for smaller amounts simply because they're smaller companies today, given the reductions in force that they've done. So on net for us, it's been quite positive. We've seen um, great growth. We grew 21% last, last quarter, which we felt very good about. But there, there are a balance of tailwinds and headwinds for us. All right. Uh, Gary Steele, CEO of Proofpoint. Thank you so much. Appreciate you joining us. And we'll be back with more First Move after a short break. Don't go away. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 